You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. Today's episode is a lecture from Rob Ludwig. Rob is one of the workers at the Dutch branch of Labrie, and this lecture is called The Lure of Mindfulness. What I, what I want to look at today is, is the trend, or maybe it's better to call it a phenomenon, I think, actually, of mindfulness, what it is, where it comes from, uh, and I want to consider ways to value and appreciate certain parts of what this trend tells us about who we are right now. I also want to be critical about some aspects of the movement as it has grown, which may, I think, actually betray and, and cheat some of who we really are, just taking ourselves very seriously as human beings. And I hope what we'll see is that while mindfulness does speak very loudly and, and I think well in some ways to certain longings we have, uh, which I do believe have been given to us by uh, a personal infinite creator, God, as his image bearers. The message and the reality of the Christian gospel is a much stronger foundation for what mindfulness practitioners are looking for. And we'll see some examples of how that looks. Okay, so that's, that's kind of where we want to go with the, with the workshop. But just to start, first a word about, about the phenomenon. Mindfulness is now said to be a $4 billion industry. Uh, more than 60,000 books for sale on Amazon, have a variant of the word mindfulness in the title. Uh, Mindful parenting, mindful eating, mindful teaching, mindful therapy, mindful leadership, mindful finance, mindful dog ownership, you name it. Um, There's a mindful coloring book, which is a whole genre in itself, apparently. And, of course, alongside the books, there are online courses, there's glossy magazines, documentary films... Smartphone apps, bells, cushions, bracelets, beauty products, and a whole conference circuit with no end to seminars and classes that you can attend. Mindfulness coaches have found their way into schools, professional sports, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, government agencies, and even the military. So in short, it's everywhere. So it's a phenomenon, um, and everybody's doing it, but what is it? Okay, that's sometimes the big question. So in short, what, what is m- mindfulness? When people use this word specifically relating to this trend right now, okay, it's almost needs a little PM after it, but uh, what, are, what are we talking about? In general, you could summarize um, the use of the term, or the, the concept of mindfulness is learning to focus, uh, to be able to give your attention calmly, and fully to what you are experiencing this moment. Okay? But also free from the pressure of analyzing it to death and, and certainly not making judgments as you go. Okay? Keeping it non judgmental. 
Uh, in the words of the uh, American doctor, John Kabat-Zinn, who more or less is responsible for how we use the term now in the West, the one who has really popularized it um, and, and uh, been behind sort of the movement as we know it now, mindfulness is a way of cultivating a quality of mind. That's a phrase he uses. Uh, and you should notice, it's a, it's a well-chosen, he's chosen his words carefully there. Um, notice it's not just a state of mind. It's interesting. It's not just about achieving a state of mind. It's about developing and cultivating a kind of quality of mind. Okay, so working on and developing a responsible and sort of maybe valuable quality attitude to life. And this description, though, interestingly, cultivating a quality of mind, is actually a literal translation of an Indian word, gom, which can also just be simply translated meditation. Um, and mindfulness is, therefore, very often, and, and rightly so, associated with meditation practice. Uh, more than 30 years ago, um, after a, a time of training um, um, of seven years in India and all in the neighboring uh, in different kinds of, of regions in India, uh, in different types and practices of meditation, um, Dr. Kabat-Zinn came back to the U.S. Uh, to finish his studies at the University of MIT. Okay, so with his knowledge of, of the meditation practices, but also his PhD in molecular biology, he began to really look for the connections between these two fields of interest and experience in his life. And what rolled out of that would have an enormous influence uh, in the decades to follow on Western visions of healthcare and the healthcare culture. Uh, for years, Kabat-Zinn was doing uh, research uh, on the relationship between uh, body and mind um, when it comes to healing, um, especially the links that he was uh, researching had to do with uh, psychological disorders and mental conditions, but also especially chronic physical pain, okay, real physical manifestations. Uh, and it became clear in his research, what we all know now, that lowering stress levels in uh, your daily patterns, your daily habits, your daily life will bring an improvement in these other areas in your life, not just psychologically or mentally, but also physiologically. Okay? Physical improvements uh, are possible. So alongside his uh, scientific research, uh, articles he was publishing, books he was publishing um, about this, about these results and, and his theories, Kabat-Zinn also set up the Stress Reduction Clinic and the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Health, and Society up there at the University of Massachusetts in the medical school. So this is a formal part of the medical school there already for years. And there um, he had developed and created and, and then began giving on the basis of all his studies these, what is now sort of a more formalized version of the mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Okay, this eight-week class um, which teaches meditative practices and forms of yoga and helping people deal with stress and its physical manifestations. Okay, and that might be the, the class that some of you have, have taken part in. Okay, so this, this course is now everywhere. 
uh, in this very, uh, the same form, this eight-week course. It's also Oliver Holland. Um, there's a, a whole four-year program at the University of Nijmegen in Holland to train people to be able to do this. So it's, it's a real active and developed and established piece of Western culture now, spreading through. And Kabat-Zinn, I find, uh, is not shy about his ambitions about this, and, and not just for himself, but he really believes what he's doing is good. just saw this quote uh, a couple of weeks ago from an interview. Uh, it was quoted in an English um, newspaper, The Guardian, where he said, Mindfulness has the potential to ignite a universal or global renaissance. It may actually be the only promise the species and the planet have for making it through the next couple of hundred years. Okay, so that's, 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 a, that's a leader who believes in what he's doing. Um, I, I find. Um, and, but this language is very loaded language, isn't it? And it's what a lot of people are finding uh, who are trying these mindfulness practices. Okay, I haven't found something that's delivered a promise uh, in other places, some kinds of therapies, uh, maybe a, a support group, or maybe even what I've heard in church. So I'm going to turn to something that, oh, it's a bit scientific-based, it's backed up, it seems to be working for people, let's try it. Okay, so this, it, it has a, this trend, has this wave uh, going for it right now. So what, what exactly is the training? And please, uh, the ones who've seen it close by, fill in what you need to. In the training, uh, you receive two kinds of meditation training. First, there's a very formal meditative training. It's mostly focused and based on uh, breathing techniques, breathing exercises, where you really put your focus on your, your own breathing, the drawing and exhaling and rest in your breathing rhythms. Um, just noticing the rhythms of your breathing and the fact that you are breathing. Okay? Uh, and, and by doing this in a more formalized, fairly intense and, um, and ongoing practice, you learn to put your attention on that breath so that you can begin to ignore other things, other stimuli, other noise around you, and that you can let that go for a time and really focus on your breathing. And so the point of the practice and the exercises, and this will often be repeated as you are doing it in the course, uh, receive uh, without drawing conclusions. Just receive what you notice, let it go, and the next moment will come. Okay, not... You can notice I'm uncomfortable, but then let go, breathe again, notice your breath. You can notice, oh, am I breathing right? Oh, a lot of people struggle in the beginning. And, okay, notice that, no judgment, let it go, come to the next moment. And the idea is to remain as much as possible in the moment at hand. Um, not spend time on the moment that just was, um, but let that pass. And this is a very disciplined <clears throat> and, and, and hard practice training with eventual variations brought in, maybe expanding past just listening to your breath and paying attention to your breath, maybe to a certain body part, uh, maybe another object outside yourself or nature, maybe later, with the same receptive attitude, okay, receiving non judgmental. And this language is repeated a lot. Now, alongside that <clears throat> formal meditative practice from, for longer periods of time, hours uh, by the end, you're also trained and taught how you can have multiple shorter moments 
of meditation, more informal meditation. And the goal here is then that after your course, you will be able to return to, to daily life and practice. And at any moment of the day, um, from uh, up to 20 or even 30 times as you need it, you can stop what you're in the middle of. You can return your focus back to the here and now, eyes closed, focus on your breathing uh, or another body part or whatever. And in this way, learn to shut out or to combat attacks of stress, fear, worry, pressure, other things that start to flood in. And this is the way, Kabat-Zinn says, you build your muscles of attention. You become athletically attentive to the present moment. Okay? Now, for people who suffer from stress and noise and clutter and distractions, and if you add to that fears, criticisms in your mind, this can sound really attractive, doesn't it, to anyone? Be able to focus on the moment, where you are, and, and be able to, to do what you can do and, and not be bothered with things that aren't at hand. Now, why, why, why does this focus appeal? What's, what's the call? What's the promise um, that Kabat-Zinn or that, that the others are offering? I think what I hear in here is, um, uh, uh, first, the freedom to really be in this moment that you are given with full attention. We are very distracted today, fragmented. That's the theme this weekend. Um, to realize when I'm talking to somebody, when I'm doing a project, when I'm with a child or a friend or uh, anything, when I'm eating a meal, to be there more fully is something that really uh, draws us as a way of being free. The more I'm focused on this moment, the less my attention is going to the future. And all its accompanying fears about things that aren't literally not here at this moment, right? Um, with all the, the, the fears that go along with that. And, and the more I focus on this moment, maybe the less I'm also sort of drifting back into the past. With, again, the, the accompanying regrets or fears that certain moments out of my history will define my life forever. Okay, so the, the point again is we don't live in the past, we don't live in the future, we live now. So the stress and the fears associated with those moments are not only not at hand, they're bad for you. They will start to hurt your body eventually. Um, and, and it's unnecessary. Okay, so in this training and in this practice, learn to come free from that. Okay, so by being in the present moment, receiving and interacting with what's in front of me right now, this is sort of one aspect of the freedom. But the second one, and that comes quite strongly in the training, along with it, is this commitment to non-judgment of the moment. Okay, because this, this takes it a little bit more deep in, in what the point of the training is. The, the idea is not just to receive that moment that makes it mindful. I need to learn to receive it without drawing any big conclusions about it, especially... The conclusion that things should be different than they are. Um, because, according to how this course is set up and how it's filled in, the, the negative effects of stress on our health are most attached to those feelings of fear and anger and worry, which in the vocabulary of the course are most attached to judgmental thoughts. It ought to be different. 
I ought to be different. This shouldn't be happening to me. Okay, these these judgmental thoughts. So learning to to receive it, having making a certain impression on you, but then let it go and waiting for what the next moment can bring is is the, the message also in this attitude, which is holding out a promise of quality of life. Okay, so I, I learned through practice then to also come free from this judgmental thinking, this kind of dualistic thinking. Receiving moments, letting them go, moving on without judgment, and hopefully then lessening the symptoms of and attention for unnecessary fears and worries in my daily life. Now, the, the first thing we probably should say about this, and then I'm also kind of looking to the, the experienced experts in the crowd, now, something about this seems to work. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a $4 billion industry. Okay, something about this seems to work. Uh, this kind of image, we're all used to it now. But this was kind of the revolution of this, this phenomenon. Uh, where science seems to be called in to show meditation really works, right? It, it, you can do a brain scan uh, of the monks as they meditate and see something happening in the brain. And you can also notice in the body there are measurable um, levels of blood pressure going down for people. There are a higher amount of neurotransmitters and serotonins being released in the brain that are associated with feelings of happiness and peace. Okay, these kinds of things have been studied and, and are measurable. It's commonplace now that people on the street, you would say, is meditating good for you? Everybody would say yes. Okay, this is what we're used to thinking now. I should also add... Uh, way back in 2005, when we first started hearing about some of these things, I read a study in Time Magazine called The Biology of Happiness. If you can look up old issues of Time Magazine, it's really, really interesting issues, especially now, so many years later. But the same images, by the way, in, that, in, a, in an article in that issue of Time Magazine, um, showed that uh, the images appearing from the brain scans of these meditating monks exactly the same pattern appeared on the brain scans of smokers who were deprived of a cigarette for 24 hours and then allowed to smoke again. Exactly the same brain scan. So maybe serotonin maps might not be the best guide for determining whether something is really healthy for you or not just because it shows up on a brain scan. Just so remember that. Take it with you. But other studies do seem to support that mindfulness focus does help. Um, with this lowering of stress and the physical manifestations of that. And I even found some years after that a quite interesting article right out of Harvard University, which is a research project which had shown that meditation and, and, and what later became that mindfulness form of practice can actually change the physical structure of your brain, that parts um, decrease and other parts increase in the actual tissue of, of, of the cell. So, again... Something's happening. And this kind of study has been very popular uh, also in recent years. There's lots going on in this field. And the work, therefore, that Kabat-Zinn has done has really influenced and promoted um, this, this trend in, in Western healthcare society. Okay? From, from scientific therapists all the way through to gurus just leading retreats and glossy magazines. And this is the same message you hear across the board. If you want to improve your health, and if you want to take better care of yourself, if you want to learn better how to rest and work in your life, be mindful. 
And I think it's increasingly appearing in the vocabulary in Christian culture as well. So, from, from what I read now and understand, in conversations I've had, I've had with people who've studied it, who actually lead these courses, people who've taken them, uh, the freedom that people find, I want to know, what do you find? Uh, not just the data, but what do you say about this? What do you find? And, and often, I began to see two themes developing, two things that seem to be what people are finding in these kinds of courses. Uh, one is that it does seem to lead to some kind of measurable improvement. Um, something very often physiological, or at least mental and psychological, that you can feel, you can sense, you can sometimes even measure it. So there is, a, there is a delivery on the promise that this can change your life in some aspect, at least temporarily, certainly something. Okay, that's one. And the other thing <clears throat> I often heard people saying is that this was deeply attached, this change was deeply attached to a real awareness of an improved freedom in being able to let things go. Letting go. Okay? Or to use a fancier word, detachment. And the combination was important because if you were getting one without the other, we'll come back to this, you, you come to a kind of a tension in how this is supposed to play a role in your life. Okay, so again, this a feeling of improvement and also saying I do feel something has gotten me more free because of my ability to be able to detach from situations or ideas or voices or stimuli in my life that bring worry, stress, fear, or anger. Okay, so again, this is a combination. Now, but this brings me right away to a question. This is how they describe it. Well, what is actually working here? I really want to know, what is actually working? And you notice there's a tension that's coming up the more you listen to people talk about mindfulness. And especially John Kabat-Zinn himself. Uh, you can find long uh, lectures recorded of him speaking on Google Campus or other places on YouTube. Um, and, and he practices what he preaches, often in the middle of a lecture he's giving. He'll stop and center and have a moment and, and come back. Um, practicing exactly his own um, his own uh, principles, but as you listen over an hour, you will often hear him and others saying that mindfulness is anything but dualistic. It's not dualistic. It has this non-judgmental character. We're not thinking in categories of right and wrong, good and bad, um, that kind of framework. Still, the language does appear the longer you listen, and it creeps back in at other moments when you're asked to sort of discern what is healthy or unhealthy in your life. Uh, Whether you can measure an improved state or quality of life before and after your eight-week course, better or worse. Okay, so the language of judgment persists the more it's actually explained. And sometimes you also hear, very often in the beginning, that mindfulness is anything but goal-oriented. Okay, it's not directed at the product, because goal orientation and product focus leads you to the language of judgment. Well, I'm not there yet, right? That I'm falling short, that, oh, that's the, that's the language to be avoided. But at other moments, of course... Even Dr. Kabat-Zinn himself is saying mindfulness can 
help you achieve personal goals, right? Your effectivity at work or your patience as a parent. Remember, it's about a quality of mind, not just a state of mind. So again, this language of judgment, in a sense, persists. This is really important um, because I think the more I've listened to people about mindfulness and seen what it's actually doing, I think you've got to be honest. Without a goal, there is no mindfulness. It's kind of inherent in what you're doing. And not just a goal, it's a positive goal. Again, just trying to stay in their own language. Positive is is a dualistic term. Um, It's about improvement. You don't sign up for a mindfulness course to learn how you can behave worse or destroy your health. Okay? Really. You do it because there is something you've noticed in your life that's a problem or an obstacle and there would be a way you want to overcome this somehow or at least measure steps forward about it. Okay? So... I just want to point out that tension already because I see then in mindfulness these two pillars, but also two dangers, which then come right out of that. Um, Again, I think the the two pillars you might be able to say would be improvement and detachment. And and with uh, one without the other isn't isn't mindfulness anymore, you could say. But again, and this is now me listening more to people who write about mindfulness and people I've known who've been practicing it or or reading about it wanting to apply it in their lives um, whether they're promoting it or or just describing it I have discovered that in in people following and wanting to apply this in their lives one or the other of these pillars starts to get more emphasis and it starts to be at the cost of the other one Okay, so something about how mindfulness in, in this form has been presented with these two pillars they start to compete. And it's really interesting. So sometimes it would be an image of goal or improvement, but then the detachment starts to kind of fall away. And you get, in the end, a kind of a consumerist view of what mindfulness is here for. You have an ad to help you become a better mindful dog owner. So you go to the store and you buy a book about that. Okay? It becomes part of a marketing strategy and it, and it even can take on a kind of character which seems very self-oriented uh, in a way. It's about my happiness, my peace, my efficiency, my health. Okay? And, it, and, and, and the marketing geniuses of the world have not missed this as a niche. This is the other reason it's a $4 billion industry. Okay, So in the end it kind of leads to what you could call pretty heavy attachment behaviors. That, yeah, my happiness is indeed very dependent on how efficient I am at work, and therefore I need to be more efficient about it. Or how much time I take off, or how low my blood pressure is, how much me time I have. Okay, so that the attachments to these things are actually strengthened in in the name of this improvement. Uh, Psychotherapist Miles Neal has recently called this the mindfulness phenomenon. Uh, and it really irritates him as a practitioner of Buddhist meditation. Okay, that's, he starts to see that and get annoyed by that. But that brings me then to the other kind, because these are also here the more you listen. Um, so you have other, kind, other people who seem to emphasize more this ideal of detachment. The real focus on 
letting go of judgment, letting go of dogmas, letting go of measuring sticks from the pressure to do better, be better, have more, um, and, and to avoid people who talk that way, right? That can be toxic, so stay away from it. Very freeing in the beginning. Very freeing as a kind of detox sometimes from a certain atmosphere. But as many people discovered, once, once they're past the detox or the, or the recovery moment, the emphasis leaves people a bit directionless. Uh, once they realize that they have reached a, a, a more place of peace in their lives, they have also sometimes ended up at Libri, like, but where do I go now? What now? And I've lost a few friends along the way. Okay. Well, I recently had already finished this workshop, but then just two weeks ago came across an article uh, which I thought, gosh, I have to put this in there somewhere. Again, from The Guardian, uh, a really scathing article, actually. If you want to look it up, you can. Uh, sorry, that ends up uh, being directionless. This article called The Mindfulness Conspiracy. Um, I had been focusing already for a while on this sort of dissonance in the mindfulness movement. Uh, in this way, but this article came right out and said it, that the whole trend had actually become a fusion of both bad things I was mentioning, directionless consumerism, and condemning it like that. It was like a new religion of the self, this article says, both totally consumerist and totally directionless, and as far as real progress is concerned. So in spite of John Kabat-Zinn's very large claims about the potentially world-changing benefits of mindfulness training, this article says quite plainly, if you look how it's actually being used and by whom, it makes you wonder. And the article says this, anything that offers success in our unjust society without trying to change it is not revolutionary. It just helps people cope. In fact, it could also be making things worse. Now, why, why does the author put it this way? Because he says, he directly goes to the teaching of the mindfulness uh, practice, the mindfulness-based stress reduction course. And he says, instead of encouraging radical action, mindfulness says the causes of suffering are disproportionately inside us, not in the political and economic frameworks that shape how we live. And yet, mindfulness zealots believe that paying closer attention to the present moment without passing judgment has the revolutionary power to transform the world. And then I left off the, the, the snarkier, sharper comment, uh, this is cheerleading on steroids, you know, something like that. It's a very interesting critique. And, and you can tell, again, that the motivation of the author and the critic here is not a a right-wing religious conservative. Uh, it's, he's more on the left, politically, economically, and socially. Very unhappy with all the abuses of capitalism going on in the West and how mindfulness is turning a blind eye to that. And how actually the marketing of mindfulness is capitalizing on that blindness. Okay? And listen to how he puts it. Void of a moral compass or ethical commitments, unmoored from a vision of the social good, the emphasis on non-judgmental awareness can just as easily disable one's moral intelligence. And a truly revolutionary mindfulness would challenge the Western sense of entitlement to happiness, irrespective of ethical conduct. I 
that's a big statement. Now, whether or not you agree with this author's political and economic views, he's, he's making a really interesting point here, isn't he? The ones who have been through mindfulness courses, you know about the raisin exercise? Okay, this is kind of a famous thing. It's in some circles become a bit cliche, but there's, there's an exercise, a basic thing, that you, you eat a raisin for 15 minutes. And basically, or, or an hour, you know, depending on your, your coach. So you first receive the raisin, right? You hold it, you, you look at it. If you've taken the time to look at a raisin, you know that this isn't nonsense. There's a lot of wrinkles on there. There's, there's sugar sometimes. Colors are a little bit different than you thought, maybe. Well, then you can feel it. Next phase, you can rub it around. Eventually, you get to put it in your mouth, but don't chew it, right? You feel the aroma. Or oh, you can understand where I'm going. So once you get one bite. And, and there's a very slow eating of the raisin. And everybody loves this exercise. It's famous. And it's fun. And, but why? Why just, you know, but really, I'm serious. Why can it change your life? That's what the thing says, right? Can a raisin transform your life? You know, I was curious about that. And I actually participated in one of these one time and, and got a little bit in trouble because I asked a hard question afterwards because the whole time, receive the raisin without judgment. Receive the raisin without judgment. And I was like, listen, you're not teaching us to receive the raisin without judgment. You're teaching us to fall in love with this raisin. That's why everybody loves this. Because we're learning to love that little guy like we never have. And it's just, this is so value-laden. What are you talking about, non-judgment? Um, well, that was, was sort of not welcome. Uh, but the, the great cheat, then, I think, is to say that this focus is rescuing us from value judgments. That's the great cheat. No. We may want to be rescued from judgmentalness or condemnations, a condemning attitude that in its exclusiveness hates and abuses and mistreats. But in order to say yes to things we love and appreciate and to distinguish those from other things, you need judgments. If you look closely then at the real message of Eastern meditation techniques and teachings, detachment is, is crucial, central. Training myself out of dualistic thinking, good and bad, right and wrong, with all the longings attached to those divisions, is considered to be the real way to freedom from grasping and suffering. And we need much more time to, to get through it thoroughly, but the, the core is this. In, in the Dalai Lama's book, Transforming the Mind, where he lays out the principles of the long Zhou training, uh, in meditation, it's very similar to the mindfulness techniques. He says that the goal is indeed to become free from judgments and to accept what now is. But if you go further, what does this mean? What does this look like? In the Buddhist tradition, it's more specifically to come free, among other things, but to come free from the eight mundane concerns. If you've ever heard of this, the eight worldly longings, sometimes translated. And those longings are these. These are what we come free from in the training. A desire for joy from reward or a fear of pain from insult. Joy from success or pain from failure. Joy from profit or pain from loss. 
joy from belonging or pain from rejection. Now that's that's the honest picture. Okay, that's saying it like it is. That's that's the non-judgmentalness. But you see what the cost is. And I think the actual the raisin exercise betrays that's not what they're about. Uh, just after the year 2000, the Dalai Lama was invited by a liberal church group in England to come speak on the Beatitudes <clears throat> for a conference where they hoped to explore new ways that Buddhism and Christianity could sort of cross-pollinate and, and create a new religious way forward. I think still a very attractive idea to lots of people. But the Dalai Lama did come, and first, interestingly, he disappointed them in his open remarks by saying, you cannot just put the head of a lamb on the body of a yak. He said, pick a tradition and follow it. They, they cannot be combined. But more poignantly, when, when asked at a certain point by an audience member what he would do if he were in a cave and there was a Tibetan child next to him and there was a Chinese soldier with a gun aimed at the child to shoot, to kill. And at the feet of the Dalai Lama there was a loaded pistol. What would he do? And he, he laughed, his big brilliant laugh, and everybody laughed with him, apparently relieved that the answer was coming. And they said, well, what would you do? And he said, well, I would take the pistol and shoot the soldier in the knee. And everybody felt relieved until they thought, well, what does that mean? And why? And he said, because I'm not yet fully enlightened. And what he meant was, if I were fully enlightened, I would realize that this moment is nothing. That we all return that clinging to an image of crime or injustice in that moment and acting on it as though it has cosmic significance is not needed. But I, but I still feel it a little. So I would shoot him in the knee. Now that's a, that's a heavy but honest answer. I think, wow. So I think whether or not we agree with the, the political and, and other social economic opinions of the author of that article... He has a very valid point that if mindfulness is detaching me from any value system beyond my own comfort, leading me to forget or ignore the world around me in the name of escaping stress, then something's wrong with it. It's going against the relationships I may be built to protect and nurture and cultivate and enjoy uh, and maybe even change. But again, then, the question and the critique then can go even a bit deeper. Rather than just railing on mindfulness, I also wonder, what does it tell us, this phenomenon right now? The longings in the people we see who are turning to it. How can we read this? Um, more than just finding some measurable improvement, I kind of want to suggest that maybe in what people say they value about it, they're actually looking for real growth. Not just improvement in this kind of consumerist sense, but people are longing for real growth in the quality of life. Already quality was a judgment word, wasn't it? Right at the beginning. Real growth is dependent on some kind of standard or judgment for knowing what's better or worse, healthier or unhealthier, right or wrong. But it also allows for growth because growth doesn't just stomp on you for making mistakes. It doesn't condemn and cut off when someone fails. It notices and somehow graciously makes space to learn. Okay, so a judgment system can 
include failure and mistakes and still move forward. That's growth. That seems to be what actually people are longing for and how they talk about it, what they use. At the same time, deeply related, I kind of feel behind this sense of detachment, not really, in most people, a real longing to really detach from all, but for freedom in a real sense. Freedom to take steps and work on things to appreciate what's right and maybe fight even against what's wrong, but without this perfectionistic pressure that if it's not complete today, then it's worth nothing. Or that if I make one mistake, it was all for naught. Okay, then, then the future becomes too threatening. And if you see it this way, what an interesting entrance the biblical worldview can make at this point in the discussion, right? As an image bearer of God, which the book of Genesis tells me that I am, that all humans have been made that way, I've, I've become free to enjoy the gifts of a meaningful creation. God made the world and called it good. And that's actually the deepest layer of the reality of creation. And even in a broken world, I'm, I'm called to give that goodness my attention. Even in a raisin. They don't know how biblical that exercise is. We're told in Genesis that we were built for all kinds of relationships. Uh, dependence on God, first of all, for life and breath and also understanding. But also relationships with each other, with ourselves, with our environment. To take time to focus on and value the goodness of those things in an age of distraction and shallowness. To, to work on that with, with pressure and discipline. Um, to, to learn to close out the noise and value the, the design of something that's been made. The words of someone speaking to you. Um, the, the quiet of a moment of doing nothing. This, this can be a biblical discipline. But to be clear, we're not freed by focusing on our breath and what is. Just receiving it without judgment. We're focusing on appreciating it as a gift. And loving it. And, and finding new ways to fall in love with it. Okay, it doesn't need, mean we need to immediately make a spiritual metaphor out of everything. I remember being in seminary, and at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and Jaron Bars was teaching. It was my first class with him, and it was snowing outside. And he just stopped, and he's like, look at the snow. It's, it's good. In a divine proclamation, this is good. And he said, and not just because it makes you think of Psalm 51. And I, my sins have been washed whiter than snow. No, it's good because it's snow. And I was like writing it all down. It's like, I don't understand yet, but I need to remember this. But, okay, so that, that's a call. But secondly, I'm, I'm also free in this other sense, as a special agent in creation in the biblical picture, to listen to what God says about how I'm to protect and nurture all these relationships. More than just appreciate there are choices and actions that can harm these relationships or break them. And learning to discern the right from the wrong is sometimes clear and sometimes hard. But the idea is you can cultivate and develop the creation in a good way. The quality of it. There can be real growth. And in fact, as um, even alluded to already today, even in a fully redeemed new heavens and earth, According to the prophecies, there will still be this kind of progress and development, right? Have you ever wondered why, 
after the last judgment day, when wars have ceased, all tears have been wiped away, that swords will be beaten into... Sometimes you hear that so often, you forget what's being said there, right? In Isaiah chapter 2. I mean, why would the swords not be beaten into art? Or knives and forks for the great banquet? Or maybe a big iron throne, as one recently ended TV series suggested, right? I, I used to wonder, why, why plowshares? Well, why? There's going to be farming. Okay, there's going to be plowing. There'll be things to develop and cultivate still. We could go on about that forever. But the point is, there is a law or an explanation of how to discern what is good, what the boundaries are, how to protect and nurture and cultivate these things within those boundaries for real growth. And and then one more element. Third, when I become free to grow, not just by choosing what's right, not just appreciating, but also choosing and maybe defending, fighting for, but also being forgiven when I fail. Then it becomes a gospel. When I make mistakes, there is judgment. It does matter. Actually, if we're honest, part of us wants to hear that. And it deserves an answer. But the creator of the good world is also a redeemer who says he's died and rose again for me to know the meaning and the reality of forgiveness. Not to be defined by my past mistakes. Not to be defined by the mistakes others have committed towards me. But free to forgive and to keep moving forward in a new and a living way. Now, again, we could talk about that for hours as well. Lots of nuance needed there and how that looks But it's a basic core element of the biblical vision. And what an answer that gives to what is being sought in these mindful practices. And actually what is appearing and how people try to apply it and what they then miss. So just to summarize, rather than just living in the moment as though nothing else were real. Or proclaiming non-judgment as a path to freedom. A biblical vision speaks of a creator who in the deep past made and proclaimed creation to be good and that allows me to take time to focus and to learn to value it as well. And there's also a redeemer who will complete his work in the future by fully freeing this world from crimes and death and that allows me to grow in steps toward that day now. Learning to accept forgiveness and also to give it so that I can move forward without a fear of condemnation. Without this perfectionistic fear that it must all be accomplished today. Or that one mistake will just knock it all off course. So even with a critique of mindfulness as the trend. What I actually want to say is that what mindfulness was trying to sell but can't. Can actually be found in a biblical worldview. Long before John Kabat-Zinn there were people telling us this as well. And I, I want to be careful with the time. But I did bring a couple of examples. So I'm going to fly through them a little bit quick because... Way before this trend was on, there were, there were people around, even in Western culture, who were saying similar things because they had a deeper understanding of why. And one of my favorites is uh, a guy named Clyde Kilby, a professor of literature at Wheaton College, who back in the 50s published a list of 10 principles for mental health, as he called it. Uh, and now you can, you can Google it and find it pretty quick because people have caught on. Ooh, he was ahead of his time. Okay? But he doesn't call it just proper faith or right thinking. He recognizes this has to do with the quality of life. He calls it principles for mental health. Okay? Based on a biblical worldview. 
remember he was a literary, literature professor, so the, the language is, is literary. But I just brought them. And let's look at those real quick. I'll fly through them. If you want them later, I'm happy to send them to you, but you can also easily find them yourselves. From Clyde Kilby. At least once every day I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. Not lost or intimidated by that, but remembering it. Wow. I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I don't know if he's ever kind of accused of being weird, just staring at a person. So he should be careful with that advice. But, and I shall not, listen to this, I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. Now again, did a mindfulness trend right now would say, oh there, see, non-judgment. That's not what it is. It's accepting without condemnation, without over-analysis. But the value is there as the gift. I shall joyfully allow them, here it is, the mystery of what Lewis, C.S. Lewis called their divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence. Good value words. I shall sometimes look back at the freshness of vision I had in childhood. And try, at least for a little while, to be, in the words of Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, the child of the pure, unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. Okay, to, to give yourself that childlike, not childish, childlike appreciation for a moment that you're given. A cloud blowing by, or a flower, or somebody laughing or playing. I shall not allow... The devilish onrush of this century, okay, remember this is the 50s, <laughs> to usurp all my energies, but will instead, as Charles Williams suggested, fulfill the moment as the moment. I shall try to live well just now because the only time that exists is now. Now that's maybe a bit more extreme than we'd want to say. We do believe in the reality of history, but what he's saying is here you are. Okay? Let, let the moment be significant as, as a holy moment. In the flow of time. And even if I turn out to be wrong, I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic, nor run by an absentee landlord, but that today, on this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. And so you see, joy isn't just related to my serotonin's. It's related to trust. Serotonins could deceive me. It could just come from having another smoke when I missed it. But, and, that, and that would be breaking down my heart and my lungs. But a joy that's based on trust in someone who has made it and will complete it. In, in, in Dutch churches, in the Reformed tradition, you welcome the crowd by, by inviting people to celebrate the presence of the Creator who never lets go of what his hand has begun. That's how it starts. And there, there's trust in that that gives joy. So that's Clyde Kilby. We're doing on time. I'll fly quickly through one more because I want to be able to add, 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 take your questions. As some of you will have heard of Brother Lawrence. Also one, I think, a really special example. A Carmelite monk in Paris worked in the basement of a hospital um, fixing meals. He was the kitchen monk. 
um, fixed meals for the sick and the uh, peasants and anybody, um, feeding sometimes 50, sometimes 200 people uh, at a time, was known for in the chaos of the kitchen um, having this very calm demeanor. Um, in the midst of all the stress, not being somebody who got ruffled by it and angry and, uh, you know, it wasn't Iron Kitchen or whatever these things are, all screaming at each other to get the product. It was, he had a way. And though he didn't write books or treatises himself, lots of people wrote him letters because they were interested. Like, man, you know, where do you come from? Where do you get this? And so he answered letters. And those have been collected in a book called Practicing the Presence of God, which you can, you can read a lot of those letters. And just a, just a couple quotes there that I find quite special. Because what, what, what Kilby was recommending had a lot to do with the very horizontal things, right? Even if looking up at the sky. He, he placed it in the context of a creation gift. And I think that's very good. But uh, Brother Lawrence introduces even a further devotional side. That I, it's God's presence I can even give my attention regularly throughout the day. Just in a moment. Remember. Think often of God by day and by night. In your work and even in your diversions. The more the better. The Lord is always near you. He's with you. And he adds, we should never leave him alone. It would be rude, don't you think, to leave a friend all alone who has come to visit? Why do we do then this with God? And, yeah, you can think of kind of a cartoony way to apply that. But in another sense, on a moment where I think I'm lost, alone, and abandoned, wasn't it David who also said, I said too quickly, you've turned your face from me. You're not, not alone. Let a mind go there. And, not just for moments of glory and thankfulness, but we should not be discouraged by our shortcomings. That's part of it. That's what reminds us to be free from a spirit of condemnation. We don't need to be discouraged by our shortcomings, but rather pray for the infinite mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We don't deny our shortcomings and therefore come free from them or say they don't exist. Pray for infinite mercies whenever you need it. Right? Right out of Hebrews 4. Without fear or shame, run to the throne of grace. Good advice. And then the very last sentence of the very last letter he ever wrote doesn't even really finish. And I think it's really fantastic. If, he said, if we really knew how much he loves us, you can fill it in how you would. What, what, how would you fill it in? If I really knew, how mindful would we be in, in, in the real sense? And... Um, I, not just out of loyalty to the Libri conference, but because it really applies. Somebody else was onto this way before the mindfulness trend. It's the redeemed human as a unity who now stands before the personal God. The will, the mind, the emotions, all are involved. The complete human being as a unit in this moment by moment. There it is. Reality of the work of Christ in our present lives. I'm called to believe God. To believe Him not just when I accept Christ as Savior, but every moment, one moment at a time. This is the Christian life. So rather than maybe the mindful life, I, I think, look, call it the Christian life and let's explain what that really means. Because it, it fits. So that's what I wanted to bring for you about mindfulness. What's that? We got some time. So. Please, other comments, things you need to add, or things you want to ask about, um, experiences, wherever you want to take it. Let's go. Yes? Uh, teach uh, kids about 
single young adults, um, late 20s, I would say, the average age. And we just finished going through the spiritual disciplines. The first one being meditation. Mm-hmm. And I found that I had to, uh, the, the word itself, I feel like it's been co opted. I had to reteach what it meant to, um, from a biblical worldview, what meditation really was. Do you find that to be true as well? Okay, so she's asking in her experience with with uh, 20-somethings, uh, teaching them spiritual disciplines, even beginning with meditation as a, as a biblical spiritual discipline, realizing that this word had kind of been co-opted by a whole other trend, namely these more, or at least claiming to sort of broaden or universalize or, or easternize uh, the word meditation. Do we come across that? Yeah, I think yes. I think most... I mean, I, I sometimes I could, I could sympathize with um, the guy who wrote about McMindfulness, you know. I mean, I, coming here, just went to the airport, you know, there are like ads for shampoo that show people in a lotus position, you know, as though that meditation is uh, immediately associated with, with uh, pleasure and or something uh, Buddhist or Indian. Um, Maybe what you're asking is, how, how do you win it back? Is that sort of, maybe you can say just a little more. What, what did they think it meant, and how have you filled it in? Well, Brother Lawrence was often mentioned in our study, and when we did that. Okay. I felt like we just had to reteach what meditation really meant. Yeah. And when you say Eastern view, they just didn't know that, especially the part of. Uh, meditating like our Lord said to be in the presence of God. Yeah. Yeah, I think we hear it a lot. And I think it can even be confusing uh, for people who are looking for biblical forms of um, picking up something that seems more developed, packaged, and practicable, like a set of yoga patterns or something, and then saying, okay, but then I'll pray while I do it, or I'll put Christian music on while I do it, or something. I'm not, I'm not sure that's really the, the right way to figure it out. But I like how you're saying, go back underneath it. What in the Bible do we find out about meditating? What does it mean? Does it mean emptying yourself? Does it necessarily mean being alone? Does it mean being still? Does it mean listening to your breath? Does it mean what? And I think there, there, there are several options there. But yeah, I think it does take some rescuing. And not just baptizing certain things and saying, okay, we, we'll make it out into a prayer. But there's, there's a lot, it goes much, back much deeper than the typical thing people think about sitting on a mat and just being quiet. Yeah. But, I, but the emphasis, the different emphasis, I think would be two. If, if you ask me, one certainly that you keep it personal and that you keep it meaningful. And that invites, not necessarily that you pray the whole time, but that you be aware, I've been given an existence which includes physical, as we just heard, even, you know, in friendship, uh, by a creator whose image I bear. And wow, I, I don't have to take it further than that and write a hymn about it, but I can appreciate that as a gift. And also remember that that includes meaning and meaningfulness, which is value-laden. And I don't need to be afraid of that taking me into places that might lead me to confession. Nothing wrong about it, because that's also safe. Okay, so, yeah, those... Biblical meditation on that level is is strong and good, but may take retraining. Good, keep doing it. Other other things, yeah. Well, I was just thinking about the 
Okay, go ahead. So I just wanted to add a different dimension to that. Um, the Lord has embraced that given the opportunity to have a conversation with the wise man, and we were talking about meditation and emptying your mind and praying is still in your mind with God. Hmm. And not long after that, I was in Barnes & Noble with my young kids, mm-hmm. and we were at the cafe, repeat it for the, the whole group and the recording. The, 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 a quick good summary. Meditation is emptying and prayer is filling your mind with God. And I think I, I still will sympathize with people who want some emptying. Right? I mean, we want forgiveness too. We also want freedom from condemnation. We want a, a, a certain ability to trust. And, and that does include things going out. But to think and be tricked into and led into the idea that it would just be about my comfort and it would just be by denying differences and isolating myself in a bubble of safety and is, is long-term danger. And yeah, I think even even the language of filling it is very attractive and inviting and good. Yeah, great. Okay, Dan, and we're going this order. Yeah. So um, that kind of speaks into part of my question. Maybe uh, the understanding sometimes is that meditation or biblical meditation uh, is distinct uh, the meditation on the word. Okay. So it's always true to the content. Yeah. Uh, and I'm borrowing Schaefer's phrase in there, truth is out. Content is, is, is really, really vacant of anything and actually needs mysticism. So could you speak to some of that about? Specifically, the many past Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, how in Christian or biblical meditation would it be protected from slipping into mysticism? And, and one of the strong traditional words about that is making sure it is included in your meditation that you somehow are meditating on the Word or some aspect of God's revelation in Scripture, right? Is that a fair summary? Okay. I, I don't know if that means. Uh, you constantly need to meditate on a verse in itself. But I do, I, I would see a very uh, safe way and a very responsible way to do it, like Clyde Kilby was suggesting, because of your knowledge of Scripture about the natural world, you can appreciate a tree as a tree in new ways or a raisin. Um, but, but again, that's, that's very set in a context of a framework that has been informed by Scripture. Okay, so I would never separate it from that. 
I think that's what would protect it from slipping into mysticism. But if it would have to be then only safe when you're meditating on the pages of the Bible, I think that would be too reductive and maybe even not really faithful to what the Bible itself tells you. <laughs> Consider the lilies. Look at the stars. Right? There is ways to do that um, uh, because of an understanding of Scripture. So I, I really appreciate the, the protection and the element you're bringing into it, but I wouldn't think that would mean the only good way to do it would be only on text on a page. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the follow up and the aspect of how we see in many uh, traditions, especially Eastern, the, the use of that truth without content and actually leading, truly leading to this the whole idea of empty your mind. Mm-hmm. talk more about that tomorrow morning because uh, how do you prioritize the integrity as Schaefer said here the whole person prioritize the integrity with not necessarily prioritizing a part or maybe better reducing something to a part like Dick said this morning the polywog idea right but we'll come back to that tomorrow so for the sake of time we'll, I'll go on yeah I think I hear what you're getting at. She's mentioning ASMR, ASMR videos on YouTube. You know what this is, where people speak really like And you have, you have good headphones on. It's really like they're whispering really close. And do all kinds of little sound things and flipping this and flipping that to make it relaxing. And, and I, I think there's probably a lot of things going on there. But uh, <laughs> one is, I find quite fascinating about it, is that... Part of the draw of those who are popular in that genre is that they are there as a person. So there is this intimate kind of personal contact going on that's part of the, the, the pleasure. But what I think you were getting at, which I, find, I do find interesting, is that the idea that a, a physical 
stimulation of some kind can really play a role in the awareness of a truth. And I think that's kind of the point you're trying to make. And it, it was really interesting. You know, Anna just talked about the physicality of friendship being an important part of it. How? And what draws people to rituals sometimes is that not that all the meaning is in there, but that it, it reinforces it in a way and increases my awareness of it as a whole person sometimes to have that be a part of prayer or of meditating. So as you meditate to have, uh, as you pray, sorry, to have another kind of calming uh, lack of sound or sound, I, I don't know. I, could, I, I imagine that's part of what has been um, behind many decisions in church traditions to have a bell or to have silence or to have children be excused during, you know, to, to create a, a, a sensory atmosphere that's appropriate. So I think you're seeing something really long established. <laughs> but ASMR, I don't know. Check it out if you want, but be careful. It's a little bit, it's a bit odd. It's a little bit odd. It's a little bit odd, huh? Okay. <laughs> I, I, we were going to bounce this way. Who was? Yeah, both of you. And then we're out of time. Oh, we already out of time. Okay. Well, almost. Let's do two, and then we'll stop. Okay. You guys, hat and sunglasses. Okay. Uh, one of the things you mentioned about mindfulness is that there's this idea that they hold two truths at the same time. Okay. So the non-judgmental thing. At the same time as the fact that they are also dangerous and thinking about their health versus their lack of health. Mm-hmm. Or the second one was not being goal oriented but having goals for your personal improvement mm-hmm. and growth. Mm-hmm. So I just finished reading the book, my and it has the concept of double speak in it. Oh, wow. And it's the same idea that, mm. that in order to exist in modern society, we have to hold the reality or the truth of what, what's being told to us about the rest of the world, even if we know it to be untrue. So you have to hold these two ideas at the same time, even yeah. though they totally contradict. Yeah. And I, I'm seeing that idea, the idea of double speak everywhere I look, wow. that we're having to hold ideas about what is, and this <clears throat> also related to the concept of tolerance, I guess, that mm. everything is true at the same time, mm-hmm. even though we know that that's not Well, I would add two things. Like, okay, what about this double speak we noticed in, in mindfulness? The commitment to not being goal oriented, to avoid pressure, but there is, of course, a goal. Or the, uh, the constant refrain of being non judgmental, but then secretly importing quite a bit of value. So how, how, why does so much double speak happen and, and what do we think? One thing I really loved learning from, from Schaefer was that you can often rely on the reality that God has made to induce, maybe for lack of a better word, stress in a, in a life as it is lived out in reality when these things are being tried. And you say it's happening everywhere, and I agree with you. Uh, and, and why is it being celebrated all the time? I think it's being celebrated in books and in courses and in slogans and on tweets. But this is the most anxiety-ridden period of time in the West that we've known. 
So I think, no, it's not working. And I think maybe because you see it in so many places and people desperately still holding on to it, anxiety levels are shooting up. And we'll talk more tomorrow morning about that as well. Because I do, I think you're noticing something important, but it isn't just being celebrated. I think it's actually the dissonance is becoming palpable for a lot of people and in groups as polarization develops and just in people in themselves as that these things are not matching. Okay, last uh, remark. Question. There was one more? No, we're giving up? Okay, yeah? Quick. I'll just try to start really quickly. Uh, those of us in the recovery community, one of the first things we have to learn to do when we're starting the 12 steps is to feel again. Hmm. Because there's so much time medicating with whatever you're medicating with to detach. And there's damage, there's destruction in lives. Mm. Yeah. Now, the, the dangers of detachment. We, we understand why, why it has a certain allure, of course. Um, but and, and maybe sometimes, again, I'll say for a detox or a, a change moment or an emergency, a, a more clinical environment or a time when things are closed out, can help. It can be good to count to ten. Or it can be good to not have the input, to be removed. Um, but the point is to return to life. And this is not then to be the life, right? So, well said. Good. Hey, well, thanks, everybody. It's dinner time. Find me if you have more questions about it. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.